after a hiatus, we're back with another podcast of Talk with Traders. Today, I talk with a professional foreign exchange currency trader who uh, has spent decades working in the industry, started as a retail trader. He's got a lot of life experience to share with us. He also happens to be my cousin. Hopefully, you'll join me for this podcast as we talk to Brent Donnelly. And I'll be joined by Artie Azizniya. And Artie is part of the Bearable Traders team and has written a book himself and is an expert on options trading and strategic investing. Let's get to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of Talk with Traders. Very happy to be joined today by Artie uh, Aziznia, who's uh, part of our team at uh, Bearable Traders. He also is the uh, head of investments for Peak Capital Trading and the author of A Beginner's Guide to Investing and Trading. So, Artie, welcome. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for having me. Really, really excited for today's uh, guest. Yes, and our special guest of honor, Brent Donnelly. Now, Brent has uh, a fascinating background, which is why he's here. He's uh, a foreign exchange trader, uh, has been with uh, Citibank, HSBC, Lehman Brothers, uh, RBC, and he's now the president of Spectra Markets. He also produces a daily newsletter, uh, AMFX, which is fantastic if you want to truly understand the industry, not just about foreign exchange, but great insight as to sort of overall what sort of the macroeconomic uh, movers are. And uh, the author of two books, The Art of Currency Trading and Alpha Trader, which we're going to be talking about. So we're going to talk about all these elements. And Brent, welcome. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I like the uh, the little sticky notes in there. Yeah. Uh, it shows that you legitimately read the book. I can't read a book without <laughs> making notes, and and you'll see there's uh, there's highlights throughout too of different things yes. that uh, that I'm looking at. So yeah, awesome. I, I've awesome. definitely read it. So um, l- let's start actually with with some background because I really want to talk about sort of all the elements that that uh, you know your career has brought you. But because you started in a similar place I did, but made more of it. So um, even in your book, you reference the fact that you sort of started trading. Um, in a small shop, like like a retail trader, like so many of us, yeah. Um, took an account that was I think twenty five thousand dollars, brought it up to three hundred fifty thousand during the, the sort of the heyday of the internet uh, boom, and yep. uh, then experienced, of course, the pain of a changing market, and decided to go pro. So I'm really curious about that transition. So let's start there because sure. you went from where we were sitting on the street to like a professional seat. How'd you do it? Well, so there's there's one step missing there. So okay. actually, I went to school, I went to business school. And so I grew up uh, similar to you, Peter, in the time of Liars Poker and Wall Street, Gordon Gecko and all that stuff. And the irony of those things and reminiscences of a stock operator obviously was is, is fits in the category of what I'm about to describe. have all drawn people into trading, including myself. So like Michael Lewis describes liar's poker as a, as a cautionary tale. Um, and same with uh, Oliver Stone and Wall Street, right? Those are supposed to be cautionary tales, but they make trading look awesome. So, yeah. you know, when you're 16 years old, like I was, I'm like, man, that's what I want to do. So um, I went to business school and then I went um, to Citibank actually in 1995 um and onto their trading desk in in foreign exchange 
And then I went to city New York. And so an interesting thing at the, in those days was trading was very flow oriented and very transactional. So mm -hmm. the way I described it was like being a blackjack dealer in Vegas or something. It's like, it's kind of sounds fun, but then you think about it, like, is that really like all that intellectually stimulating? Answer is not really. You're just trading someone else's ideas and tra trading someone else's flows. So yeah, the dealer at the table is probably the person having the least amount of fun. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was like the hedge funds and all that, and the, that were having the fun, and I was the I was the facilitator. So, um, and I was still very young at that time, and I had some creative aspirations. So I quit and I moved back to I moved back to Canada. Um, and I don't know if you remember, um, so Peter and I are cousins in case, uh, just full disclosure. So <laughs> you, you might remember that I had a cartoon on TV in Canada. Daft Planet. Um, yep. Daft Planet. So I was doing that. And then the trading, which you described, which, um, like I'm happy to talk more about, but essentially, um, I was trading the NASDAQ bubble and there were a lot of inefficiencies at that time and a lot of ways you could trade with pretty low risk, um, and almost make money every day, but not quite. <laughs> and then, as you alluded to, when decimalization and the crash happened in 01, the way that I was trading didn't work anymore. Um, and I didn't adapt. I mean, I was immature. I was young. I was still like going out all the time, more focused on having fun and thinking that like the money, like we used to call the day trading office that we went to the faucet because you just walk <laughs> in and turn the money on and then turn it off when you leave. Um, and that's like, obviously a sign of how overconfident and, um, you know, egregious my thinking was at that time. Right. So, um, then with, with the crash and then the decimalization and then the TV show, um, was on for a while and didn't get renewed. I sort of thought of like, I, I had to rethink my priorities. So I went back to, to work at a bank. So I went, went to RBC and then like, just to skip ahead, the evolution of my career since then, so that would have been 2003, has been, I found a way to integrate my kind of creative passion, which is essentially mostly about writing um, and my passion for markets and puzzle solving and math and all that kind of stuff. And I've been able to integrate them by trading, which is obviously satisfies the, the trading part and the math part. Um, but then writing about trading. And so like, that's what the, the nature of the books are. And that's the nature of what AMFX is, is trying to write about finance and trading mostly, but also macro really is my specialty, macro FX and trading psychology and all that in a way that's not boring. Um, because <laughs> if you are exposed to a lot of institutional content, um, like FX strategy and economics and stuff, it has a certain generic feel to it because there's a calendar, like they got to write the weekly and they got to write the preview for the economic data and all that. And they end up getting boxed, like they're smart people, but they end up getting institutionally boxed in a little bit. So my goal as someone who's not like officially a strategist, more like a, my stuff is called trader commentary. I can do whatever I want essentially writing wise. So I try to write in a way that's like more interesting and so just two, two quick lessons, like life lessons that I got out of it. One is trading wise, you need to adapt. Um, and I'm sure we can talk about more about that, but understanding when regimes like massive regime shifts happen that you're trading, whatever you were doing in the past might not work in the future. And the second thing, like, which is something I kind of try to impart on my kids and stuff is 
taking one or two things that you're passionate about and then overlapping them or, or stacking them can be um, a really good way to, to have an edge in the world and differentiate yourself from other people. Like, you know, I've, I've been a decent trader and I've had some success in my life trading, but I think like my unique thing has been the combination of both the writing um, and the trading. Cause that's like not a Venn diagram that overlaps all that often. Well, and, and the, which is a shame, actually. It, it's funny because just this morning, so we have um, psychologists that come in and, and talk with our traders tw twice a week, and we find that extremely valuable. Kreta is one of the, the people who talks with us, and she uh, talked about creativity just this morning. Um, and it and I actually referenced your book when I was talking with her because because you actually mentioned in there, like you're mentioning it now, that I think there's not enough um, acknowledgement of the importance of creativity and trading. Like if you actually want to have an edge, you have to apply some creative measure to that. Otherwise you're just doing what everybody else is doing. Right. Yeah. Right. I agree with that. And, um, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. it, that's an interesting problem that wall street has now. So like I've been involved in a lot of, um, analyst programs and, the sort of like safe way to run an analyst program is to hire from the best colleges. And then you end up with like a lot of street smart or sorry, a lot of book smart yeah. and quantitative people who maybe aren't that creative. And like you said, I mean, the, the whole thing to succeed in trading or one of the things is knowing when to zag and knowing when to zig. And if you're just like a herd following trend following person, there's like, you know, you can make money doing that, but it's, that's not really like the exceptional traders that I know mostly are pretty creative and independent. Like I think independent thinkers and independent thinking requires some amount of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as, you know, as you sort of allude to, um, you know, the, that creativity, sometimes people exhibit it outside of the markets. Like some of the best traders usually have a creative hobby, whether they're a musician mm. or an artist or even an athlete. Like athletics is a different type of creativity, but that's yeah. another option. As you said, in your case, it's the AMFX. And I'm telling you, like as, as someone who's read it for the last couple of years, the first thing I go to, you always have a unique uh, a snippet, a thought of the day that often has nothing to do with trading, but it's fascinating. I admit, I go and I look for that first, then I look at the market info because first I get entertained, <laughs> then I can get educated. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little bit entertaining and educating. Like there's memes in there for people who are interested. Um, some bits and pieces from Twitter. So really, 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 really amazing. Uh, Brent, I wanted to kind of ask, uh, because you mentioned like the Wall Street and I feel like we're kind of at the same stage again with like Wolf of Wall Street coming out and, you know, trading in general is really popular. Um, but, you know, as someone who's a professional trader and like I've worked in finance as well, it's really not that glorified. Like we spend a lot of time in the office, um, you know, 14, 15 hours, really long days. So can you and like trading is really simple. And I, I talked about this in our chat room as well. I said, you have to fall in love with the idea of trading. And you mentioned this in your book as well, not the idea of just making money. You just have to fall in love with the process uh, because it could be really grinding. So can you kind of elaborate on that, uh, you know, on your day to day, um, how tough it can be? It's not just, you know, clicking a couple of buttons and uh, go, go time. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, um, like, you never, obviously, you don't really see, you wouldn't see it in a movie, and they don't talk that much about it in books and stuff, is just, like, it's the real grinding nature of coming in every day and pounding your, your head against the market can be really exhausting. 
And one of the most difficult things, like if I think about like, I want to, I was going to say dark periods for me. I don't mean like <laughs> dark psychologically more just like dark periods of trading where like, I started to wonder if I'm, you know, if I'm not able to do it anymore is it's very hard to separate variance from bad trading. So like, say you've been trading. So there was a period in 07. Um, I think I talked about it in one of the books. I can't remember which one. Um, but there was a period in 07 where I remember at the end of the year, it was like just a really hard year. 07 was a really hard year for me. And I remember sending an email to my wife saying like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It's like, I can't tell if it's just like bad luck or a bad regime or it's variance or I'm bad at this job. Like I, I can't really tell anymore. And I think that's one of the hardest things. And I mean, that was after I'd already been trading for 15 years or whatever, um, is as a new trader, separating the, the luck from the skill um, and not necessarily like luck in the way that you flip a coin and heads comes up 10 times in a row. I mean, that's one type of luck. But another type of luck is being in the right place at the right time. So if you started trading in, in April, 2020, pretty sure you probably made money for the last 12 months because everything went straight up. So people that are sending me screenshots of like, you know, look at the crypto that I bought or the stock that I bought, like, dude, every single thing in the world has gone up in the last year. And that's great. Like, you know, some people will get killed trying to short a bull market, but in general, most people are going to make money in a raging bull market when, you know, when you're buying calls through earnings and stuff like that, that's going to make money in this kind of market. And so that's like a form of luck, right? It's like Bill Gates being born in California in 1970, in the 1970s. It's like, there's a certain aspect of luck like that. Now, separating that from skill is really hard. And then, you know, say you're a really, really good trader and you make money 50% of days and you, those, but you pays two to one, you're still going to lose money six, seven days in a row. So on day eight, after losing seven days in a row, can you come in and go like, you know, I'm confident in my process and I'm still good at this. So I'm going to do the same thing I've been doing for the last seven days. That takes a lot of mental strength. And so in, in a way, the longer you do it, it gets easier because you realize like the sun always comes up the next day, no matter like how bad your trading was or, or whatever you did wrong. Um, but in a way, it also gets more difficult because there's the cumulative strain of, of all the grinding, right? Like it's a little bit like playing poker. Like if you want to be really good at poker, you have to be able to go to the table and play for 14 hours and in hour 12 still be making quality decisions every hand. Um, and it, that's difficult. So like, I think generally, I guess to answer your question, something that it's impossible to appreciate until you do it is just the grinding nature of it. I mean, obviously, especially in the downtimes, like when you're killing it, obviously it's fun and it's not a grind, but in order to get from those periods of, of outperformance, like from one perform outperformance period to the next one, you got to go through the valley in between. Um, and that's really, I think, ultimately what long-term good trading and, and successful trading comes down to is being able to ride out the, the down periods, which means like the times when you're just not trading well, but then also the times when the regime isn't very good and volatility is low or whatever. And then, and not over trading in those times and killing yourself so that you have capital when the good times come. 
um, and you can monetize those good times and then and have fun. And sorry, this answer is getting pretty long, but just to close close up one other thing. One thing I will say is I used to kind of be afraid to be happy or to to like you know celebrate if I did well. And you generally people are very hard on themselves when they do poorly. And if all you're going to do is beat yourself up for 20 years, like that's not very fun. So if I do well, like I try not to feel overconfident because I know like that can be a sign that you're about to get destroyed. But when I do, if I have a good day, I'll say like, you know, I pitched well today. You know, you, you, you doesn't mean I'm going to pitch well tomorrow, but I, I played well today and I'll give myself credit and, you know, buy a nice yeah. bottle of wine or whatever. Yeah, there you go. Well, you're right. I mean, you have to be careful to celebrate the ups as much as you uh, uh, lament the downs, if you will, because and we do have a tendency like I, I talk about this all the time. It's amazing how as individuals, we it feels natural to say, oh, you're, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that stupid thing? It doesn't feel natural to say you did a good job today, right? That, that was mm -hmm. a good trait. Like we should compliment ourselves as much as we, you know, take the downside, but you know, so, somehow we, we, we always go to the, the negative self-talk rather than. Yeah. And I think some of that is if you can, if you have the ability to get outside of yourself and view yourself objectively and you think about like, okay, if I was my own manager, what would I be saying today? Then I think sometimes the conversation that you have with yourself is different than if you're just like, in those insane loops of all the voices getting mad at you and all that. And those, most of those voices are not even necessarily you and they're not necessarily productive. Um, so I, I think there's a benefit in, yeah, just being like nice to yourself sometimes and saying like, you know, if it's true, then just say, yeah, I, I did a good job today. There's, there's no shame in, in, in that. Like you don't have to brag about it, but you know, yeah. you can acknowledge your ups and your downs. It's amazing, as you said, even after 15 years of sort of on the professional circuit, so to speak, you, uh, you know, you still have those moments of doubt. And that, that's a good lesson for everybody, because as a novice, I mean, that happens daily, right? Like, yeah, I, sure. I, I remember going through the cycle where, like, you make two good trades and you're like, I've got this. I've got it figured out. <laughs> then you have one loss that wipes out it all. And you're like, oh, I, I can't do this. What am I thinking? Like, I better go yeah. find a job where the one ads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's one thing that I try to really emphasize in Alpha Trader is um and it was kind of eye-opening to me actually when you run a bunch of simulations if you just if you have a rough idea of what your your trading statistics are right. you can build a simulation like using the rand function in excel or whatever and it's kind of it it's i i mean i have a couple of them in the book but it, it's eye-opening to see how much even if you're the best trader in the world how much variance there's going yeah. to be and I think like having a visceral understanding of what that variance is and what that means makes it a lot easier to ride the ups and downs because yeah, then you start realizing, okay, like, you know, if I lose money four days in a row or if I make money four days in a row, a lot of that is just variance. And, and then really you got to look at monthly and yearly data to, to really make true assessments of whether you have skill or not. Um, and like I'm, the good managers that I had at banks look at the PL or talk about the PL like once a week or once a month. Right. And bad managers are like coming to you at 10 a.m. and then again at 2 p.m. to see how you're doing. You know what I mean? And that's how you it should be the same thing for your when you're managing your own yeah. your own self is having like a high enough altitude view that the numbers actually mean something and not getting like too angry at yourself or happy with yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, well, and that's a good point because we can't get too mad on a day-to-day -day basis because uh, you know I, I talk about this a lot. As in, as humans, as individuals, we do not really process randomness very well. Like right. any 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 winning, even if you have a winning process, it's going to lose a certain amount of time. But often we perceive, you know, the wins as skill and the losses as bad luck as opposed to understanding right. that's just part of the variance of the process. And, you know, if you get a string of losses in a row, you're like, oh my God, why am I so unlucky? Like I must be doing something wrong as opposed to immediately saying, you know what, that that's part of the process. Like you said about flipping a coin, you could yeah. flip a coin and theoretically it could land tails 20 times in a row. Um, chances are it won't, but it could. It, that's within the variance probability if you do it long enough. Right, right. Uh -huh. So anyways, you, you made me think of a quote when you talk about luck, because I do like the concept of luck, because like I said, we often attribute uh, sometimes things to skill that shouldn't be. Um, and sometimes it is luck, luck meaning it's chance. Um, but there was a quote, I can't remember, it was a golfer, I think, who said originally, the, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. And I always think that applies to, to almost any endeavor, but trading especially because, like you said, that gives you the equanimity to sort of just be calm through your trading process and say, you know what? Like you said, that day eight, when you try and come into the office and make a good trade after seven losing days, that's a tough one. It takes a really strong internal fortitude and mental strength to be able to, to stick to your process. And I mean, that is obviously one of the big cliches in sports and trading and all that is the process versus outcome mm -hmm. dichotomy. But I think that's a really important thing to, to not just like understand, but really internalize is that like you control the process and if you can get to a place where you're almost like, I don't even care if I make money because all I know, like today I made great decisions and I lost money and, you know, shit happens kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's the mentality that you get to if you're a really good trader where you're just so confident in your, not overconfident hopefully, but confident in your process and your decision-making that, that you're just taking the, the, you're aggregating all the information, you're taking it and you're making a decision at this point. And you're not looking back now using all new information that you had to, to make hindsight, you know, assessments of prior decisions. You're just taking all your information, make the decision, move on, make a decision, move on. And like, again, to the poker analogy, um, you know, if you run into, a, a, you, you have a pair of aces, you go all in and the other guy has a pair of sevens and the flop is seven, seven, two, and you lose, a good poker player will just laugh that off because that's like, you know, you were such a huge favorite in the next hand. You're the, a good poker player is not steaming. He or she's just looking at the cards and going, oh, now I have kings. I'm going to go all in again. Whereas a bad poker player looks at the kings and goes like, well, you know, I just lost with aces. I guess I better not push with kings, even though like the three other people that just pushed are drunk or whatever, you know? So <laughs> I think the, the ability to like, and I know it's a cliche, but I, I mean, some cliches are true to just focus on, on process. And I think it applies to like, even like to small business and, and all that too, right? If you're trying to like develop a, a clientele and you're, you know, you're trying to sell subscriptions to a newsletter, you know, the one thing you can do is write a good newsletter and work really hard on your marketing and all that. Um, but the thing you don't want to do is sit there obsessing over how many orders are coming in. Cause like, that's the outcome. And, and really you don't control that. What you control is like the, the process. And so like, I'm a big believer in that in trading is that the, if, if I lose money cause I came in and I was lazy and I just started hitting buttons that would really get under my skin. But like, 
if I write a three-page thing about why I think Bank of Canada is going to be hawkish and, you know, they're hawkish and then I end up losing money on the trade, I'm like, well, you know, that's that's kind of trading. Like, that's just like the, the randomness around trading and that maybe there was no specific lesson there. Just, you know, I I shoved with my aces and I got beat by the sevens. That happens in trading too. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I love the poker analogies because you're right, it happens all the time. And and I, I find the parallels are are there, right? To just to, from, from a gaming perspective, if you will, because you're right, like you can have the best trade in the world. It sets up well, it's, it's exactly, you know, your analysis is dead on, but you get beat on the river, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody, you know, the lucky hand or the, the unexpected event that, that sort of takes your trade in an opposite direction and, and presents you with a loss. So hey. yeah, it's uh, anybody who, who trades probably runs into poker at some point in time, if, if not ends up playing poker. Interestingly, they say the best traders tend to be the best poker players too, so. Yeah, yeah there's definitely that. some evidence of that um, in the research and then like some of the founders of some of the HFT firms and stuff came from yeah. the poker circuit. So yeah, I think there's a ton of overlap. To use another poker analogy, you also reference in, in your book uh, about a poker style. We're talking about patience, right? So patience, I do think, is a hallmark of trading because so many people overtrade. Now, I happen to be an undertrader, but that's, a, you know, which is, I, I it's the flip side of that coin. But, um, but you talk about that tight, aggressive style where you need to be tight, meaning no, you know, when, when you don't have the cards, you don't, play the hand or in trading terms you don't take the trade but when the trade presents you got to be prepared to to jump in and jump in hard i i often refer to it as i like to think of myself as the crocodile at the watering hole right that crocodile that is an excellent hunter but it sits there and waits and waits and it's got to wait for that right opportunity there could be lots of animals on the plains it's got to come and get a drink where i can you know <laughs> i can jump out and get it i think of trading the same way there's lots of trades that are almost good i gotta wait for that one that is you know great otherwise i will waste my opportunity right and i mean that that's very difficult for me because i mean as you could people can probably assume from the poker stuff and all that i enjoy gambling sports gambling and poker and things like that in a, in a healthy way um but that can be what trading does for you as well and that's unhealthy so you know it's a lot more fun to be sitting there with the position and you're you know the, there's like books about this, like the hour between dog and wolf is an excellent yeah. book about the physiology of, of trading. When you put a trade on, there's dopamine being released in much the same way that like a recreational drug would release dopamine in your mind, in your brain. And so that's, you know, that's not a good way to trade. Um, that's more like gambling or more like, um, you know, trading for fun. And I think one of the lines from, I think it's Ed Sakota. Um, one of his books is that whatever you want, the market's going to give you that or something like that. You'll get, whatever you want, you're going to get it from the market. And so if you want stimulation, that's what you're going to get. But if, if you want to actually make money, then that's a completely different set of behaviors. Um, and I mean, personally, I've always struggled with, with the overtrading thing because I mean, that's exactly, I just, you know, I crave novelty and stimulus and you can get that from trading, but you also lose money when you trade that way. So in the end, you got to, if you want to stay, stay on the path of trading and you want to do that, um, you got to figure out ways to, to not over trade um, or in your case, figure out ways to pull the trigger so that, because like um, I would say as a manager of traders, that tends to be more the issue is people um, undersize, under trade, 
um, get out at the first sign of trouble, just white knuckle every trade. Um, and there's like one, I can't remember who said this, but one of the aphorisms that I like is, is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like mm. if you, if you have meaningful risk on, on a trade that you really, really like, you should probably feel like a little bit uncomfortable, um, in terms of like your position size and that. Mm. And a lot of people don't like feeling uncomfortable because that's like the opposite of craving novelty is some people crave comfort. And so I, I mean, really no one ever falls like on the perfect party. Like anyone that's ever worked for me, you can always say they either over or under trade, like no one falls in the perfect part. Yeah. Um, so it's always going to be something that everyone has to deal with. So like, you don't have to feel bad about it. Whether you're trigger shy doesn't mean you're a bad trader or whether you over trade doesn't mean you're a bad trader. It's just like everyone faces that. So it's just, can you actually implement systems? And for me, it's like the, the solution to that problem has always been about um, like direct processes and creating friction, making it harder to, to press the buttons, automating stop losses, things, things like that, where you're, creating processes that say like, okay, this is my weakness. And actually, sorry, one other thing on that is I think sometimes there's value in just saying like, this is my weakness. Instead of saying like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to be more disciplined next time or whatever. Sometimes like for me, I think a turning point in my career was when I just said like, my discipline's not very good. And yeah, I can probably get a little bit better, but I'm never going to be a God of discipline. Um, so better to have systems and rules in place to to limit my trading or or to you know maximize my maximize the the pnl on my trading than to say like i'm going to be more disciplined because like the bag of chips is always going to be sitting in front of you if you have a screen you know like if you you can't just put put away your screens and and not look at the at the numbers flickering on the screen so um so yeah anyways it's a continuum for sure from like risk averse to to over trading, but everyone is somewhere on the wrong part of the of that yeah. spectrum. So figuring that out is key. Yeah, and I, I like how you say that, that, that you're right, you have to acknowledge where you've got a weakness. It doesn't mean you don't focus on it, but acknowledge it and figure out a way to manage it. Um, you know, we, we, we have a relative who's a, a recovered alcoholic and uh, he talks to me all the time about the fact that you're, you're an alcoholic forever. Right. Mm. So, but it's, it's just about managing that. And this is an individual that hasn't had a drink in like 30 years, but yeah. says, I'm still an alcoholic. I honestly believe in trading. You're an under trader or an over trader forever. It's just about yeah. how do you manage it? How do you mitigate it using a strategy and approach, uh, risk management, you know, whatever you've got, you got to put something in place to help you manage it. Cause it's not like you suddenly wake up one morning. You're like, Hey, it's fixed. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. Yeah. Right? And I think that generally goes against my, my overall philosophy in life, which is generally people can change and you can get better at things like, you know, one of, one of the things about like the, the growth mindset, anyone that has kids probably has learned about that. Cause that's been very trendy in the last five, 10 years. Right. Um, there's a lot of valid points to it in, one of the main points of it is you don't really say like, I'm a such and such person. Like, uh, you know, I'm just always late for things. You know, what are you going to do? Well, like figure out how to be on time is what you can do. Like, you know, in that case, it's a pretty easy thing to fix. So that's like, that's an example of mine that I, you know, that's, I used to always be late for stuff. And then I realized, oh, this is kind of rude and kind of annoys people. So maybe I should not do that. And that's a pretty easy thing to fix. 
So I think like overall, your goal should be to, to have a growth mindset and never say like, I'm that kind of person. Mm-hmm. But I think there's specific areas where you just have to be realistic and say like, my brain is wired in a way that craves novelty mm-hmm. and is always going to want to overtrade. And so I'm better to acknowledge that and then try to implement systems to, to rectify it. Yeah. Greg, can I ask you a question? Uh, probably at a other side of the spectrum in your book, you talk about grits, right? Like yep. being resilient, con- uh, like trying, um, but you know, Angela Duckworth for anyone listening, you can check her out. She's done amazing research on grit. She also talks about grit is also about knowing when to give up. So my question might be a little edgy, but do you think anybody can be a good trader or do you think at some point some like what is the trigger that that person looks at it's a screen and says hey maybe this is not for me because that's also great you know giving up at the right time is also part of great yeah and i mean you can't yeah that's a part of succeeding in life is knowing when to cut your losses right yeah so i get quite a few dms from people that like that have read my book with that exact question of like you know, it's been three years, I'm grinding, my wife's like losing her mind and, and that kind of stuff. And like the short answer is I 100% believe that not everyone can be a trader. Like there's an X factor, which I think is like a combination of, it's just like, you know, everyone, I mean, this is physical, but like not everyone can hit a major league fastball. Not everyone can be a professional poker player. Not everyone can write best-selling books. Like I think there is a definitely an X factor um, that it's just, there's a, it's a skill and it's not all just like intelligence or grit or, or stamina or whatever. Part of it is just a skill. Like some people, I, I could spend, you know, 20,000 hours learning piano. I'm still not going to be that great. So I think, so how do you, then the next question is like, when do you stop out as a, as a career? I mean, there's, I don't think there's really a clear answer. Like the, the answer has to be like, when, when you believe as a, as an individual that you, you've really given it the, like, I think going too long is probably like the answer generally is like, you probably want to go like a year or two longer than you should have, if you're really passionate about it, because, you know, like my foray into trying to like, first I was trying to get a movie made when, and then we ended up getting the TV show. Um, and then like, I, you know, I was kind of in that rabbit hole for four years. I was trading as well, but it took me a long time to kind of go like, you know what? I don't really think this is like what I'm meant to do in my life. Um, cause I wasn't sure. Like I thought maybe, maybe I'd end up as a creative person, like a script, like a movie guy or something. Um, and I just got to a point where I kind of felt like, you know, you'll never really know for sure, but I felt pretty confident after four years that, my passion it was my passion was with trading and and not with you know with writing although i'm still passionate about writing in a in a not full-time kind of way um so uh, unfortunately i don't really think there's an answer to when like when do you cut the cord it's it's more like you know acknowledging at some point that you know that it costs you a lot of money too to be an unsuccessful trader right because oh yeah you you're gonna probably lose money and you're also gonna be foregoing the opportunity cost of you know whatever else you could have been doing um and there's lots of other things that people can be doing out there so i don't know i like i think it's just one of those things where i kind of had to like look deep inside myself and when i was ready to to go back to um finance and out of writing 
And, but then I kind of knew, like, I, I felt pretty confident that, okay, yeah, I'm done and I, I it's time to move on. Yeah. You just gotta, you gotta make, get to that point. I, I don't think it's necessarily as much about results as it is about how you feel about you, your, your passion for it and your, and your probability of success based on your, your determination of like, okay, I know exactly what my edge is and I think I can do this. Or like, I honestly don't really know. I made money last year, but I don't even know how, you know, that's like, that's a bad sign. <laughs> the, the only answer I usually give people on that question is that it's some combination that's unique to, to you of um, uh, profitability and enjoyment. So if you're yeah. right, so if, if you're yeah. both unprofitable and not enjoying it, it's time to get out, right? You, you've, right? you've reached the point. But most of us, there's a big gray area in there where you might be profitable, but you don't like it anymore. Well, like maybe it's not a rewarding career. So it might, as much as you can make money, if it's a grind every day, that's a problem. A lot of people are on the other side where they love it, but you can't seem to make money at it. Maybe then it's a hobby. Right. So you use the analogy of like a piano player or, you know, basketball or sports. You know, a lot of people realize, you know what? I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. Turns out I'm not that good, but I still love it. So I'm going to do that as a hobby. I got to better find something else to make money. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great way of looking at it. I mean, that's one of the beauties of trading is that depending on your, your time horizon and your style, um, sometimes you can do it and have a real job at the same time. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and then sometimes I, I'm sure there's people probably that started it, maybe were a little bit too immature or unskilled, got a normal job, but kept, you know, kept in touch and, and kept practicing. And then were able to quit their jobs and probably at 32 years old started trading again. You know, I'm sure that that exists too. Um, and one thing, you know, not to beat this too much, but one thing that's super important to succeed in trading is having a healthy risk-taking environment and yeah that can mean different things like as a retail trader it means like having enough capital having support of your family and that at a bank it means like working at a place where someone actually wants you to take risk and and is saying that honestly um and then has like a rule-based system that you can follow so you know whether you're following the correct risk guidelines or whatever um, so sometimes people who are not succeeding in trading, it's just because they're undercapitalized and have too many other financial stresses. And then you're not really giving yourself a fair chance. So like, you're better off to, to quote unquote quit, yeah. go get a normal job for a while, you know, build your equity. And then when you have 50 grand and you feel like you're a lot more skilled six years later, you know, then you can do it again and give it an honest try. Cause like, screwing around with a $5,000 account, hoping to try to quadruple that account so that you can like pay your rent over the next 12 months. That's not going to be a winner. Yeah. That's a very challenging way of doing it. More probability for sure. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned about the professional trading. So let, let's talk about that for a second. So you uh, recently moved from a big bank professional environment to uh specter markets tell us about that why, why the move and and what's specter markets all about sure so there's there's a lot of things that go into it um the main thing was that um as my books have become more popular like got more you know i guess more people bought my books i started to see that like there's a bigger audience for the stuff that i write um mm -hmm. because it's kind of like a bit educational and like hopefully not boring, like I was saying. Um, but working at a bank, 
you can really only send your content to clients of the bank um, or like a few friends and family or whatever. Um, so that was becoming more and more limiting. And then on the other side of the ledger too, um, the, there's so much innovation going on outside of, of traditional finance right now, like with crypto, obviously, and then DeFi and, and fintech. I kind of felt like it was an interesting opportunity to move to something that's less, um, I, I'm trying to think of like a, cause I don't want to say it overly negatively, like, um, like less institutional. Yeah. Just, just less bureaucratic and more innovative, I guess is, yeah. is kind of what I was looking for. Like. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and it's harder to harder to execute that kind of spirit in a very large commercial bank. Um, and that's not a criticism of any of the places no, I work. It's just the like the reality yeah. of large, large organizations. So here I'm trying to build, um, like, so I'm still talking to institutions, but I'm also trying to build more of a content business where like I'm selling subscriptions to AMFX, whereas before I could only give it to, to HSBC clients or city clients or wherever I work. Um, and then also now it gives me the, the ability to write about crypto, which I'm interested in. And there's a lot of overlap um, between fiat, G10, FX and cryptocurrencies. And I think there's kind of a lane for me to run in where you can use some of the traditional ways of looking at markets, like behavioral finance stuff. And then also like, seasonality technicals all the all the stuff that i look at um and apply it to crypto so i think there's like a, a lane that i can drive in even though i'll never be expert on like which l2 solution is going to dominate web3 and all that stuff that's not really what i'm i'm aiming for so um yeah short answer i guess would be that this move gives me a lot more intellectual flexibility or or creative flexibility to write about whatever I want and to talk to whoever I want. And that's just not possible in an institutional setting. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's great that it gives you that, uh, that increased, uh, uh breadth, I guess, to, to focus on the things that you like, you still trade though, right? Yes. Yeah, actually. And that's one other thing is, um, like this wasn't a deal breaker, but when you work at a bank, you, you can't really trade PA, mm. um, you know, single names and crypto were completely, um, banned where I worked. So, that's pretty limiting too. Um, so now I can trade my own money, which is nice. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, we talked about grit, which you mentioned in the book, and we talked about patience. One of the other elements, because you, you actually go through, you talk about the big five character traits and you, you, you talk about the different elements of trading. And that, by the way, that's one thing I loved about this book. Your first book, The Art of Currency Trading, was was uh, was a good technical manual. It sort of helped set you up with what you needed to do and and almost like a strategic plan. Whereas this yeah. is more about how do you manage yourself and, and what characteristics and qualities do you need to to be aware of and manage to, to drive long-term success, to be an alpha trader. Right. Um, but one of the things you talked about uh, as the biggest predictor of success was rationality. And rationality is not something that I often hear people talk about, but it made instant sense to me when you mention it, who, who doesn't want to be rational, but, but it, it, there's more to it than just the traditional definition of rationality. Maybe you can expand on that. Sure. So I think the, like, there's so many different angles on the rationality thing, but one of the basic things is if you talk to a lot of traders, most of them, tend to either follow the herd, which is like a majority, obviously that's where the herd comes from, um, or they're reflexive contrarians and they like kind of always want to be smart and like fade the crowd and 
like I was definitely like that when I started. I think there's a there's a satisfaction to, you know, stocks have been going up for three years. Top ticking stocks and being bearish is going to make you feel and look smart, um, yeah. but it probably won't be the optimal strategy over time in a raging bull market. Um, so I think generally, like there's a Peter Thiel quote, which is I think the ultimate. Um, way to think is not to follow the crowd and not to go against the crowd, but just to think for yourself. And it takes a very rational mind to absorb all the fire hose of all this crazy information that we, that we receive like CNBC and Reuters and Bloomberg and all that stuff um, on top of all the conversations you're having with other traders and sales and whoever, and then, you know, sit back and, relax for two seconds and go, okay, what is my actual view? What's the rational view here? And sometimes the rational view is to just go with the crowd, right? Like, I mean, in, during bubbles, a lot of times people, most of the money is made on the long side, not on the short side. So I think being able to just separate out that it's kind of like a signal noise thing too, is it, being rational is partly just about um, eliminating the emotion and the funny thing is like, I don't think it necessarily means you have to be a robot. Like you can still be happy when you're making money and, and be annoyed with yourself when you're losing money and all that. But it's, it's whether like, okay, say you're, you know, game seven of the world world series and you know, you're, you're up to bat, you're probably going to be pretty emotional at that point, but can you still like, clearly think, okay, I think he's going to throw a fastball top, like upper corner. So I'm going to, you know, I'm guessing fastball. Can you still think straight in the, in the heat of that emotion? And I think like fast markets are kind of like that, right? Where a lot of stuff is going on, you're processing a lot of information. And now is the output going to come in and is it going to be emotional? And like you, the thing's skyrocketing. So you're bullish because you get sucked into that narrative and that price action. Or can you be rational and say like, okay, my indicators say this is wildly overbought. You know, all the people on CNBC that are reverse indicators are bullish. And so I'm going to be bearish in the face of this raging bull market. You know, that's, that could be a rational way of thinking or it could be suicidal. But anyways, that could be a rational way of thinking. So I think um, being able to just stay rational and process a lot of information um, is really an important thing that is is hard to have and then it kind of also plays to the risk-taking spectrum right is if you see some opportunity and you go okay rationally i know really i should be betting huge on this and like i'm up a ton on the year and you can have all those com conversations in your head and then you half size it well that's not rational that's just like your risk averse and you can't fear. overcome your risk aversion or your fear right um so can you make rational decisions all the time in the face of incomplete information and, and a lot of emotional and, um, you know, other baggage, then you can succeed. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, <laughs> you, you mentioned in passing, you know, we, we, we sort of joke all the time that when, when you hear it on TV, do the opposite. Or we, <laughs> we have a, a guy in our chat room that said he knew, for instance, the, the original cryptocurrency bubble, he was at a, I'll just say a coffee shop. He, he was at a coffee shop and the barista said, I am taking 
every extra penny out of my paycheck and I'm putting it in crypto. He said he knew that was the time to get out of his crypto <laughs> position because when the barista is investing everything, they're at the tail end of that bubble, right? So it's time yeah. to get And sure enough, it did drop shortly after. Um, but it, Brent, has that... the, Brent, you have the magazine cover uh, indicator, right? And that yeah. that's most of the times is right on spot. Like Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting thing. So one thing over the years is I've grown more skeptical of anecdotal evidence. Like, you know, this rings a bell, this rings a bell, like, you know, such a, people have been saying about Canadian housing since like, you know, Pitbull was on, on the stage in 2014 or whatever. Um, it's very easy to see anecdotal things in hindsight and go like, Oh, this happened, this happened. Um, so I actually did a study of the, of the economist um, as a magazine cover indicator. So the theory, just in case some of your viewers don't know, is that when something financial be, it appears on a mainstream uh, magazine like The Economist in, and it's unambiguously directional. So like a su super bullish thing on the front of The Economist saying like Brazil to the moon or whatever. <laughs> the theory is that that's bearish because um, once a mainstream journalist has accepted a theme, you know, financial professionals should already have been fully invested in that ages ago. So um, I did a study with the guy, um, Greg Marks. And so the interesting thing was, it was true. Um, so the, the data was pretty strong that like six to 12 months out, whatever that asset was, whether it was bearish or bullish on the cover of The Economist, tended to go the other way pretty hard. Um, and to me, like that makes a ton of intuitive sense. Um, and so that's something like worth watching for is like, what are the other magazine covers? I know a lot of people have like the Costanzas in their lives that are like the people that are just always wrong. Um, and like, that's another thing. It's not very nice to say, but whatever, that's like, um, <laughs> I like the Seinfeld that, reference. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> just reverse indicators in general. You can kind of be on the lookout for that. Although I will caution people that if you're, if you have a bias, you'll see indicators everywhere that, that support that bias. So mm -hmm. like there's a lot of perma bears that will always see bear stuff everywhere. Like, Oh, this type of music is in favor right now. That clearly shows the social mood is bearish. Um, so you have to be very careful. And that's actually another amount, another aspect of rationality. Um, I mean, it's the definition of rationality pretty much is freedom from bias. So if you have, like, I think being a perma bear is the worst bias because like empirically it's wrong and it's so attractive intellectually yet so wrong historically that, um, and it's very fun. Like it makes you look smart and all that and it sells newsletters. So a lot of people do it. Yeah. I was going to say um, it's also other, very marketable, right? Cause yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate marketing tool is to just predict a crash all the time. And hopefully there's one and you get, you know, you're the guy that predicted the crash. Um, yeah, but, that's the problem, right? That you, if you predict it, you know, frequently enough, eventually you're going to be right. But people correct. tend to forget the thousand times you were wrong before that. The broken yeah, watch exactly, is yeah. correct twice yeah, a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but there's other, so that's a really obvious one, but there's other biases. Like, um, like Canadians tend to not want to be long Canada, like the currency. So like when I worked at Canadian banks, generally people always wanted to be long dollars and short Canada. Like, that's not good. You know, you don't want to have a bias like that. And I would say if you're trading something and you're like, you know, you can all only be long Tesla, if you're an investor, okay, that's fine. But if you love Elon Musk and you're trying to like day trade Tesla, that's bad. You know, you want to have, you want to be able to just be long or short. 
And like, I've been to, like, I haven't necessarily met like the, the super gods of trading, but like, I've met the guys that work for them. I'm saying guys, cause it's generally men, um, occasionally women. Um, but the one thing that they always say is like, you know, he's in the morning meeting and he's talking about how he's bullish this and that. And then I look at his position at three o'clock and he's short and I'm like, what happened? He's like, well, you know, this, 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 and that, um, the good traders, will be long or short, whatever the thing is. And again, it comes down to like, do you want to be intellectually, you know, right and smart, or do you want to make money? And, you know, you should be in trading to make money. And, and that's, that's the purpose of like, that's the score, the scorecard, the scorecard isn't writing like the smart bearish thing, you know, 12 years in a row. And then finally stocks go down 20% and you say, I'm right. Um, not to pick on the promo bears too much, but anyways, um, so yeah, again, I think it's specific to your market. It, it rationality means I'll be long or I'll be short and I, I just don't care. I'll just do whatever the thing is that that's going to make money. I'm a short bias trainer, but I do believe a perma bear should be picked on because <laughs> that's, there's a problem with that. All right. Well, um, Artie, last question to you, if you have one that you want to get off your chest. Uh, yeah, you know, just, just on this, uh, topic of uh, news and stuff, it kind of, uh, brings it all together. Uh, you talk about, you know, Twitter is usually uh, short bias to our stock. CNBC is long bias, understanding these biases. And you talk about just cutting out the noise. So, uh, is there some really good, uh, Twitter accounts that you think our traders, which are mostly equity traders should follow for really quality information? Cause you, you're, you're like, you can get a lot of information, like high quality information is important. Uh, any suggestion you have for them or, you know what? I think like I could, I could throw out a couple of names, but one thing I found with the Twitter list, um, is that it's very sensitive or like very particular to what you do. So like when I copy people's lists, I generally don't find it ends up being all that great. Yeah. So because there's too many things that like, you know, stat arb guys or things, things that like, I'm just not interested in or like single name, um, you know, guys that focus on a particular sector that I don't really care about or whatever. Yeah. So I, I would say the, the better way is actually to, to build it yourself by going in and searching for things that you're interested in. Um, so like, if you're a G10FX person, you know, put in dollar yen and then just see what comes up. And so I feel like my list has been built more organically. So starting with someone else's list hasn't been all that successful for me. Um, I can, I did a thing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, one time and not that long ago, I guess it was like in May, um, surveying, surveying my readers as to like, what are you, what do you think are the best FinTwit accounts to follow? And that thing is kind of useful because it's broken down by asset class and like humor and bonds and this and that. Um, if you guys have a way of, of me transmitting that to you, I can give you a link and then um, people could have a look at that. It's a little bit of like a slight fire hose because there's, there's a lot of names in there, but you know, you can start with, it's a, at least a starting point if someone has no, no idea where to start. Um, and then, you know, people can whittle it down, but I would definitely suggest to me, my Twitter list kind of became good because I actually said like, okay, I got to take this kind of seriously and build this properly. Or you just end up with a bunch of noise and it's fun to scroll, but it's a waste of time. Exactly. And getting from like fun to scroll to useful additive thing to your process 
is actually a decent amount of work, but it's worth yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll get that list from you. And if anybody needs it, they can come find us at Bear Bowl and we'll make sure to provide it to them. Awesome. <clears throat> so congratulations again on the move to Spectre Markets. It sounds like it's a great fit for you and, uh, and you're enjoying it a lot. Um, you've got the AMFX uh, newsletter. How do people, if they're interested in a subscription or at least understanding more about it, Brent, how do they get more information? Sure. So the easiest way is just to go to spectramarkets.com. Um, so it's S-P-E-C-T-R-A uh, markets.com and everything's there. Uh, they can sign up. There's a free version where I just kind of like send out things once in a while if people want to get a flavor and then um, everything's on there. Great. Well, good. Well, hopefully people go check that out. Thank you so much for your time today. Artie, thanks so much for joining me here on the podcast. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. This is about as close as I've got to Canada since uh, 2019. It's been tough on all of us, right? Because, I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of stuck in place wherever that place happens to be. And I know that um, yeah, we're, we're all itching to travel. I've got a vacation booked in uh, end of January, and I'm just hoping that the world is in a place where I'm able to, to do that. So Yeah, inshallah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, so take care, everybody. Have a great day. Thank, thanks for being with us. All right, cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Brent.